This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card. One of the great pleasures in life is traveling, especially when there's great food waiting at your destination. When months of planning, preparation, and exploration all culminate into one perfect bite, there's nothing better. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin-A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. When I was 16, my mom told me I was too old to sit at home over the summer anymore and that I had to get a job. And she happened to work at a living history museum. That's like a la Colonia Williamsburg or maybe a Plymouth Plantation. I was really embarrassed to, to go work for my mom at this history museum. I wanted to like go work at Arby's with my friends. And that wasn't an option, so <laughs> at least in my mom's mind. Um, but then it turns out it really changed my life. So I went to Colonial Williamsburg when I was a kid, and, well, my life didn't change. In England, we have Jorvik, the Viking Museum, which is kind of the same thing. I remember it smelled really bad. But for our guest this week, Sarah Lohman, spending a whole summer at a living history museum didn't just get her more comfortable in those huge, unwieldy skirts. It helped her figure out what she wanted to do with her life. Well, I look at the food of people of the past to both understand their lives and also I use it to understand not only why we eat what we eat today, but who we are as a country, both today and in the past. Sarah is a historical gastronomist. That's an unusual sounding profession. I know. I don't remember that being an option when I was in school. And she's also the author of a new book called Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine. We're going to be talking about two of those eight flavors today. You're listening to Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Cynthia Graber. And I'm Nicola Twilley. Okay, back to the Living History Museum. The museum was laid out as this big outdoor museum. There were multiple houses sort of around a village green. And at its peak, there were 40 or 50 people on staff. So it really was this world populated with characters. And I worked in a house with a family group. Every house had an assigned cook. And someone who wasn't an assigned cook was not allowed to cook. And I was so fascinated with the cast iron wood burning stove. And it was the first time I had looked at historic recipes. And it just, I don't know, something clicked with me. And I just wanted so badly to do it. But the director of the program was kind of a difficult person. And she just didn't trust me. She wouldn't let me try. But one day the cook was out sick and Sarah saw her opportunity. And I begged. I begged. I was like, just let me try. Just let me try. And if it's if I mess it up, if it's terrible today, then you don't have to let me do it again. And I don't know why, what changed her mind. But in that moment, she said, all right. 
And so I baked a pound cake. And it turned out perfect. Not to brag or anything. But Sarah noticed something strange about that pound cake. And actually, it was something missing. Something that was missing from everything she made that summer. Sarah started to collect historical recipes, and it was missing from all of them, too. And I just suddenly realized that I had not seen vanilla in any American cookbook really before the 1840s. And... That, I mean, that's baffling when we think about how often we use vanilla extract. We put it in everything. We put it in chocolate cake. You know, it is the foundation of baking in this country. And you page through those recipes of the first 50 years of American cookbooks. There's no vanilla. Rose water was used the same way that we use vanilla. And I realized that there must be a story there. Because then by the end of the 19th century, we use vanilla just as commonly in all the same ways that we use it today. Sarah wondered if this kind of shift was true for other flavors, too, not just vanilla. So she put on her gastronomic detective hat and tried to map out when flavors came into American cuisine, and then, for some of them, when they left. Kind of like a timeline of taste. So I pulled cookbooks in 50-year increments published in America, and I just created long lists of all the ingredients used that would have been primary flavorant ingredients. And once I got that list, I started narrow. I would kind of um, hashtag how many times I saw something mentioned. So then I would start narrowing it down even more to like the things that were really used really often. I would look at different eras, 1800, 1850, 900, 1950, and sort of outline what food tasted like. And then why? You know, why were these ingredient shifts happening? Who were, were the people bringing them to this country? Was there something fashionable happening? Was there something in science and technology that changed? Sarah came up with about 30 winners, 30 ingredients that were hugely popular at different times in American kitchens. But some of them, like rosewater, were basically fads. They were really popular at one time, but then faded away. But I realized that they're were a sequence of flavors that arrived, sometimes very suddenly, and then only grew in popularity, didn't decline. And I, then I also realized that those flavors, those one with that particular sort of arc, or I guess climb is a better way to put it, often said bigger things about how we were changing as a country in different time periods, and what our attitude was as Americans, too. They had these much, much, much bigger stories behind them. Those eight flavors, the ones that stuck around, those are the eight flavors Sarah writes about in her book. You'll have to buy the book to find out what all of the eight are. We chose two to focus on, the oldest in the book and the most recent one. Sarah's book starts with pepper, so we started there too. I was at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden and I was planning a class I was teaching. Um, I think I was teaching it in the spring, but I was like there in February to start doing research for this class. It was like a, a class on botanic cocktails or something. Anyway... Brooklyn in February is terrible, terrible. It's like, you know, zero degrees and that wind, and it's just miserable. So I hid in the greenhouse, the tropical pavilion at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, and they have a really beautiful, healthy example of a black pepper vine. It's this dark green plant with spear-shaped leaves. And it has these little things that pop off of it called pepper spikes. They're like uh, little little fingers that come off, and they're covered in berries. Yes, black pepper is actually a berry. And the berries start green, and then they ripen to red. And what color pepper you want, that reflects when the pepper is harvested. So, like, if I want white pepper, white pepper is actually just the seed of this berry. I harvest these berries when they are uh, almost totally ripe, and a lot of their chemicals have fully matured. And then that's when I harvest it, dry it, process it. 
If you want black pepper or green pepper, you harvest the berries when they're relatively unripe. The longer they're left to ripen on the vine, the less spicy they get. Black peppercorns are boiled and dried, so their skin wrinkles up and becomes black. Green peppercorns are just the unripe berries, preserved in such a way that their skin stays green. And pink peppercorns, FYI, are not even pepper. They're berries too, but berries from a completely different plant. White, green, and black are the three varieties of real pepper. They're native to the Malabar coast in India, and our supply in America originally came from Sumatra. And we absolutely loved it. Pepper was in almost every recipe in early America. We didn't have our first cookbook in America until 1796, but we do have manuscripts from earlier. One of those is a collection of papers that historians call uh, a book of cookery, and it belonged to Martha Washington. As Sarah went through Martha's recipe collection, she realized that black pepper cropped up again and again. It's used in some of the same ways that we know it today. In fact, she has a venison recipe, which I've put in my book, that's crusted with black pepper and lemon peel, which is so good, but is also the ancestor of um, steak au poivre, you know, this really sort of classic French, Franco-American dish of steak crusted in peppercorns. But something else that really interested me was a recipe for essentially what was like a gingerbread cookie. She called them pepper cakes. And uh, the pepper cakes had spices like coriander and ginger, but it also used black pepper alongside these sweet spices. And that's a way of using pepper that we have forgotten in the modern era. We use it only in savory things, but historically it was used in sweet dishes as well. We're used to having sort of sea salt on our cookies now and thinking that we're wild and crazy, but <laughs> black and black pepper is a is a whole new step into the unknown for me. What what happens when you eat a black pepper cookie? I mean, it just it just tastes nice. Sarah's recipe is basically for a version of lovely spice cookies where the pepper plays against the other spices like ginger and coriander, but Sarah adapted it from the original. I will say the original recipe is pretty is pretty pretty bad. Um, they're actually called um, pepper cakes that can be kept in your house for six months to a year. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. I kind of and love they... that, though. I think it's so funny that the <laughs> idea yeah. is just to keep them around forever. Yeah, just let them hang out. I'd also see that in 19th century recipes, too. Like, oh, these will keep for a month or two. And I'm like, who is keeping these cookies around their house <laughs> for a month or two? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Also, I just feel like cookies that last for a month or two are clearly not the most delicious cookies. Because otherwise, <laughs> they would be eaten. Yeah. So I, you know, the only thing that we kind of treat like that in the modern era is fruitcake, right? So there's this idea that flavors can mature over time or even ferment a little bit and make something nicer. I don't get that when it comes to a cookie. Um, yeah, they were... So like the, <laughs> you sound really enthusiastic. Like, yeah, they were pretty bad. They were they're flavored with molasses, so they were this really dense, sticky cookie. And just as the recipe promised, I uh, I cut them out, I baked them up, I put them in tins, and I put them in the back of my pantry. Uh, a year later, they looked exactly the same. Like nothing had changed about them. Um, I have to say, I'd prefer that over the McDonald's French fry experiment. I was gonna say it's like oh, a Twinkie. No. <laughs> oh no. So I think the main complaint I had about these cookies is that they used almost as much ground spice as they did flour, which is interesting that like, you know, cinnamon and ginger were sort of used as flour in this recipe, which means that this is like a decadent recipe. So the taste it was extremely strong and the texture of it was more, I think, showing off and would have been appreciated because it had all these spices in it, that it, it, it was, yeah, 
this really weird decadent flavor. But by modern standards, it was a really, really unpleasant experience. Okay, so no early American six-month pepper cakes. But you know, even though Sarah didn't like them, lots of Americans obviously did. Martha's recipes called for a lot of pepper. But then our supply got cut. Well, the British weren't like so keen on trading with us after, you know, we just kind of won. <laughs> <This was laughs> There's no need war. to wrap it in. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I was I that's why I was pausing. I was trying to do it as nicely as possible. Yes, Nikki, we did win the Revolutionary War. But the problem was nobody knew where black pepper came from. This was a problem with several commodities. Uh, the British had a monopoly on the black pepper trade on the planet. And they kept their secret. You know, they didn't want anyone else breaking in. And then along came the Crown and Shield family of Salem, Massachusetts. George Crown and Shield was apparently something of a character. That's the nice way of putting it. He had eight kids. And here's a telling story about George. One day, each of his children begged for a different drink with breakfast. Milk, tea, water, hot chocolate, etc. So what did George do? He took all those drinks, poured them all together in one bowl, and told the children to help themselves. That will have taught them. But George was not only a short-tempered disciplinarian, he was also an ambitious sort of a guy. He had established his own successful sea merchant business, and he expected his sons to join in and build a trade empire. Pepper could certainly make an already wealthy family like the Crown and Shields into bazillionaires. But as Sarah said, there was a problem. Where in the world did Pepper grow? It was another Salem ship captain who first figured that out. They got this hot tip that black pepper was grown and sold on the northwest coast of Sumatra. So um, he came back to Salem and uh, this captain and a wealthy investor got together another voyage and they just brought back hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of black pepper in, in that time's money. You know, we're not even amping this up for inflation. This black pepper trade made the first millionaires. George Crown and Shield was not one to stand by as others made their fortunes. And so he sent his son John off to Sumatra with instructions to find black pepper and bring it back. Which he did. And we actually have the journal of John Crown and Shield, one of the sons of this family. And when I read through this document, one of the things that really struck me was how nice he was to the people in Sumatra. And would write these really genuine things about, like, how much he liked the people there. And he said that at the end of his trip, like, after all the pepper was loaded onto the ship and they were paid and everything was done. Uh, and again, this is my modern paraphrase. But he was like, you know what? You guys are really cool. And I had heard that you were mean and violent and scary. And then apparently, according to this, to this document, the Native peoples, people living in Sumatra, were, like, genuinely hurt. They were like, really? You heard that about us? And then they thought about it and they said, well, you know, sometimes between two nations of which uh, are so different, there's bound to be misunderstandings. And John sort of replied, he's like, yeah, and you know what? I think that the British were saying mean things about you because they wanted to scare us away. But I really like you guys and I'll be back. Yet more shade on my people. <laughs> and it gets worse. It wasn't just that the Brits had been bad-mouthing the Sumatrans to try to scare off the competition. It's that they were complete arseholes to do business with, too. But didn't so the they, British also, but weren't they also, they weren't quite as nice as John was, They right? were not. No. And that Why was the other thing. are we lingering on this? <laughs> sorry, I'm so Nikki. sorry, Nicola. <laughs> well, because there was this, like, thing that Britain did, like, the colonial, you know, the British Empire, and it's, it's, it wasn't a great thing. <laughs> and... Th 
their foreign policy for a couple hundred years was about colonization and subjugation. And so the same tactics they were employing around the planet, they were employing in Sumatra. And so they were sort of paying off local leaders to force people to grow pepper. If they were producing a certain amount, there were punishments. And they weren't paying a lot of money, so they were also keeping this population in poverty. They were forcing them to grow this product. They weren't paying them a fair price. And it was just this really vicious cycle of um, poverty and abuse. Then the Americans show up. We don't do. We're we're pretty bad in a lot of parts of the world, so it's really nice to have a good story at this point, right? And the most important thing that the Crown and Shields and the merchants who came after them did in Sumatra was they paid a fair price for pepper. They paid about twice as much as the British had been paying. And yeah, you're you're totally right, Cynthia. Like we we have done a lot of bad in the world over a couple hundred years, and so that's why this story to me was uh, really meaningful. That we as a country, had had this great early success just by being nice people. Who would have thought it? Being nice to people. A completely foreign concept for us Brits. So the nice crown and shields got insanely rich. I mean, they were literal millionaires in 1815 money. Crazy rich. And the crown and shield's success meant that Americans also had their pepper back. Martha could make her six-month pepper cookies. Everyone could enjoy their venison with a nice pepper crust. Pepper was back to being the spice of choice for America. So how were 19th century Americans buying their pepper? Were they buying whole peppercorns? Was it pre-ground? What were they eating? Yeah, early on, we were buying pepper often as we do today as uh, whole peppercorns that we were then grinding. But by the end of the 19th century, we we were looking for convenience food. Women were really tired of cooking, to be frank, like, you know, You were finishing cooking one meal and you then were starting the next one. It was a lot of labor. So by the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, we were looking for ways to cut corners and we started buying pre-ground pepper. We really hadn't done this before because pre-ground pepper was easier to adulterate than whole peppercorns. They would mix it with um, sweepings from the pepper warehouse floor uh, or pieces of ground olive pits or even worse, it would just be like burnt breadcrumbs and to to bulk up the product and uh, make more money. And you really couldn't do that with whole peppercorns. So the shift happened uh, greatly after 1906 in the Pure Food and Drug Act. And that was the first law to prevent adulteration, to require ingredients listed, to prevent false advertising. It represented a huge change in American culture. So after that point, not only did people begin to trust food more, but food makers realized it was in their best interest to follow this law because then they got to advertise saying, my food is good and pure. So like McCormick uh, advertises its ground black pepper as being absolutely pure. So people don't want to grind their own peppers, so they um, they buy the pre-ground stuff. And that's pretty much how we use pepper for most of the 20th century. So what brought freshly ground black pepper back into American kitchens and restaurants? I think it's the Food Network. That's the first time I remember seeing people using pepper grinders, period. You know, my family grew up with a little pepper shaker. And the disadvantage to that is you lose a lot of the aromatics of pepper when it's pre-ground. They evaporate. And you're left with a lot of piperin, that spicy hot chemical. So you've got an ingredient that's spicy but not flavorful in the same way that fresh ground pepper is. So I remember tuning in to the Food Network in the early days and watching like Mario Batali and uh, Rachel Ray Everybody, 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 they weren't using pepper from a pepper shaker. They were using fresh cracked pepper. 
And that brought us into this era of, of mimicking chefs and cooks that we saw on TV and more recently on blogs and online. And so now that has become what we're used to, the sort of de facto, like we're going to use fresh cracked pepper, um, which is much how Americans were using it 200 years ago. And we are going to do a tasting with you later of a lot of peppercorns. Oh, my God. I'm actually like a little bit mad at you guys. <laughs> I went I went a little <laughs> oh, insane. Nikki went a little nuts. I love that you decided to do this despite the fact that in my book, I literally say this was a terrible idea. <laughs> we like to do things that Those other people are think are terrible ideas. kind of ideas. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You know that feeling when you try a new food for the first time and your mouth experiences these brand new flavors and sensations? It's like, wow, I didn't even know a food could do that. This happened to me when I went on this amazing trip to the northern tip of Queensland in Australia. We were so far north that we were off the country's electrical grid. And we were staying on a banana farm where they grew dozens and dozens of different kinds of bananas. In the morning, I woke up to a basket full of some of the most bananas bananas you can imagine. Red ones that were super soft and sweet like raspberries, and small finger-sized ones that were sort of floral, and even blue ones that tasted exactly like vanilla ice cream. Life's too short to pass up extraordinary experiences. And if you're ready to take your next big food adventure, go there with Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. <laughs> so Sarah's book starts with black pepper, which is why we started with black pepper. And her book ends with sriracha. This is something Martha Washington wouldn't have recognized, but that even Martha Stewart loves today. If sriracha hasn't yet made it to your corner of the world, it's a kind of hot sauce. So in some ways, Sarah's eight flavors are kind of on a spice curve. Which is funny because American food has a reputation for being bland. Yeah, it's nonsense that Americans don't like spicy food. It's a very strange stereotype of us that I can't quite figure out. Uh, because according to documents, the earliest hot pepper sauce made and sold in America was from the early 19th century. And it was made from bird peppers, which are like those little, little peppers that are so hot. Uh, Jefferson actually grew them in his gardens, too. So they've been in America a long time. And then even Tabasco, still a major brand today, they were founded in the 1860s. So how can you look at that and say Americans like bland food? In fact, looking at my research, we have liked increasingly hotter and hotter foods. 
we pursued black pepper in the late 18th and early 19th century. Uh, and piperin is very similar to capsaicin. And capsaicin is that spicy hot chemical in chili peppers. It's just like not quite as hot, but irritates our mouth in the same way. So we went from like piperin to, um, I talk about chili powder in my book too, made with ancho chilies, um, to, I also talk about curry powder too, which has hot chilies in it. And then my last chapter is about sriracha sauce, jalapeno pepper sauce made in Southern California. And now enter David Tran. David Tran is a man who created sriracha sauce and he is from Vietnam and he was there when Saigon fell. And his family is ethnically Chinese. Before everything went to hell in a handbag in Vietnam, David had a nice little business making sriracha hot sauce. Sriracha is a type of hot sauce originally from Thailand. David's version was popular in Vietnam. It was apparently used to pep up roast dog. And like Sarah said, David's family is ethnically Chinese. And these were one of the groups that were targeted at the, the rise of communism in Vietnam. They were, through many ways, forcibly removed from Vietnam. So Tran and his family escape by boarding a dilapidated freighter called the Hoi Fong. And it has about three times as many people as are supposed to be on a boat like this and sort of limps its way towards Hong Kong. And Hong Kong at the time says, nope, turn around. You can't enter here. Nope, 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 nope. And so the captain of the ship, he parks in international waters and waits because he says that people were threatening to kill him if he turned around and go back to Vietnam. Eventually, uh, Hong Kong becomes an international port to accept refugees, and the ship is allowed to land after about a month at sea, just waiting, and the whole family and everyone on it are processed into UN refugee camps and then eventually placed around the world. Tran and his family parted them up in Boston in January of 1980. So I don't know if you can think about coming from Vietnam to Boston in January. That sounds really uncomfortable. It sounds pretty shocking. And uh, the other half of his family ended up in the L.A. area. And David told me he just remembered, I, I got to do something. I got to support my family. So he called his brother outside of L.A. and said, do they have chili peppers there? And his brother said, yes. So David packs up his family, moves to L.A., and by February of 1980, he starts producing sriracha sauce from locally grown red jalapeno peppers, locally grown garlic, a little bit of sugar, a little bit of vinegar. And he says that ever since then, he's never been able to make enough of this hot sauce to meet demand. David calls his new company Hoi Fung Foods, named after the ship he escaped on. He designed the bottle. The label on it, the big rooster, is because the rooster is David's sign of the zodiac. People even call it rooster sauce. And every single bottle of Hoi Fung Sriracha is made in one factory in Irwindale in Southern California. The peppers come in, they're washed, they're ground. Everything is done on site. Even the bottles are manufactured on site. It's The bottles are made, they're squirting into the bottles. They're packaged there. Everything is done in one facility. And in fact, all of the jalapeno peppers come from one farm, uh, Craig Underwood, Underwood Family Farms. He wrote the trans a letter about 30 years ago and said, can I grow hot peppers for you? And they said, sure, let's give it a shot. And they are still working together and actually have changed the agricultural makeup of uh, that particular part of Southern California which used to be a lot of orange groves, is now fields and fields and fields of jalapeno peppers to meet the demand for peppers in the spicy sauce. 
In a weird way, this insanely popular hot sauce, it's actually like a local food thing. The peppers are off the farm and in the factory and made into hot sauce in only three hours. And the factory, get this, when they wash the peppers, they collect all the dirt that comes off them and send that precious soil back to the farm. And it's really seasonal, too. The color of the sauce changes depending on the growing season. Experts, true sriracha aficionados, they can tell when the sauce was made by just looking at it. Top tip if you wish to look like an expert, the sauce gets slightly darker towards the end of the growing season in November. So the next question is, how did Sriracha take over America? So especially in California, where there was a lot of Asian kitchen staff, they were using Sriracha first. And that was really David Tran's intention, that he wanted to make a sauce. He said, okay, there's going to be a lot of people living here from Vietnam. They're going to miss their sauce from home. I want to provide that for them here because they need it for this particular dish. And one particular Vietnamese soup, pho or pho as many Americans pronounce it, it starts to become popular with non-Vietnamese in America too. So it starts there with Americans eating pho and noticing this sauce, and the bottle is really recognizable. But at that point, sriracha is just like any ethnic food. It's not mainstream. It's not an American flavor. So there's this place called the Center for Culinary Development, and their theory is that there are five stages for a flavor to make it big. In phase one, it appears in foodie dining establishments. Like Momofuku was one of the first places to put sriracha sauce on the tables, too. Uh, David Chang's ramen restaurant. So we start seeing these sort of high-end foodie places. And then in stage two, it gets picked up by gourmet magazines. So like Cook's Illustrated declared sriracha the best hot sauce in 2012. It was in Bon Appetit, too. So it's like this high-end food media covers it. And then in three, it starts trickling down and trickling broader. Um, For sriracha, it suddenly appeared as a dipping sauce in Applebee's. So it's these sort of mainstream restaurants that reach a lot of people. Once they begin adapting it, then things are getting big. And then in stage four, you see it on a lot of recipe websites and also in magazines that aren't necessarily food-focused. For Sriracha, that happened in 2011. It was covered both on Martha Stewart Living and the Food Network blog, too. And then in the last stage, it appears in major chain retail stores. So now you can buy it in Walmart. And also in 2013, Subway introduces Sriracha sub sauce. And that's the same year that Lay's introduced Sriracha flavored potato chips, too. So it's like these huge brands in terms of food and retailers are now selling these products. And in my mind, like once it's in Walmart... It's American. And now there's sriracha-flavored popcorn. And sriracha seaweed chips. Sriracha hummus. Sriracha baby food. Sriracha chocolate bars. Sriracha mayonnaise. Sriracha lollipops. Sriracha ice cream. And just the other day, I saw a sriracha-inspired Lexus. It's red, obviously, and it comes with a boot full of hot sauce. Translation for non-Brits, a trunk full of hot sauce. (laughs) Our point is, sriracha has definitely made it. It is a fully American flavor now. But why do we love it so much? One of the advantages of sriracha is that it is not as hot as something like Tabasco or a ghost pepper sauce. It's made from jalapenos, which it's maybe like a third or maybe even a fifth less spicy than the peppers used in Tabasco. So it is being embraced by a broader audience because it's less intimidating, because you can use more and kind of manufacture the heat of every bite. It's harder to go too far like you can do with some of the hotter hot sauces. And it's also the viscosity, too. It's a little bit 
thicker. So it, it kind of stays where you put it. And that's something that has been really appealing about this particular hot sauce. Plus, there's sugar in it. It's one of the sweetest hot sauces you can buy. It is, yes, delicious. And there's just the basic biology of spicy foods. They trigger feel-good endorphins in our brains. It's like the pain in our mouths is a prelude to a wave of well-being. Speaking of pain, I think it's time to leave Sriracha and get back to that whole black peppercorn tasting we promised you. So, first of all, I i mean, I do, at least. I have to confess, I think of black pepper as this monolithic thing. Black pepper is black pepper. Like, it's not like salt, where we think about different salts from different places, and mm-hmm. we know that they taste different. But you say that's wrong, right? Black pepper is a thing that has a taste of place. Yeah, I... I don't even know if I read that black pepper had different flavors. I was just went to the spice store, went to Kalustian's here in Manhattan, which is an incredible store, and saw that there were like six different types of black pepper. I'm like, well, there must be, or I wonder if there are differences. So I also went to this famous spice store in Manhattan, and I went slightly insane. They actually had nine different kinds of peppercorn when I visited, and I bought them all. I'm not sure my taste buds will make it through nine. Where shall we start? Do you have a recommendation for where we start? All right. Well, I see that there are sort of old world and new world peppers. So let's start with Malabar because that is where botanists believe pepper originated. So this is like the original pepper. All right. Okay, Malabar. And how does one taste a peppercorn? Do you sniff it or do you put it in your mouth or do you crunch it? What, what's the technique? Well, one of the reasons that black peppercorns are preferred in kitchens is because, um, I mean, they don't really smell like anything before you crack them. Whole spices are always preferred because their shelf life is essentially indefinite. They can just sit there and then once they're cracked, that's when the smell is released. So, so let's um, just bite down okay. and see how it goes. Okay. It tastes like black pepper. Huh. Tastes like black pepper. And very, um, that very shocking, like, hot, you know. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh-huh. That doesn't come till the end. Right. Um, there's oh. a long time where you're just chewing and chewing the aromatics. But then, yeah. And those aromatics are lovely. And then the heat hits. Oh, heat my God. Hits, that is right such the, the... a delayed wave of yeah. fire. And that's something that really struck me when I first did this. Because, again, we don't think of black pepper as being spicy hot. But it clearly is like it's it's a little painful at the end (coughs) can i tell you um also what it says it says it's a taste heightener and a brow warmer i feel like my brow is warm oh yeah oh no i'm i was actually just thinking i'm getting a little warmer already so it's we're having the same bodily reaction as if we had actually consumed something hot those um, receptors in our mouth have been tripped and our brain is panicking and pretty soon endorphins will be really uh will be really riding high Oh, good. Okay. I'm waiting for So give me some more endorphins. Okay, so what's next? Telecherry, which is one of the most popular peppers in America today, is telecherry pepper, also from India. So it tastes Hmm. a little bit earthier to me Mm -hmm. when I'm getting the aromatics before I get the heat. Pine. Almost a little cumin. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, my God, it's hot. God. (laughs) Ah, Nikki, what are you doing to us? Man, this was a bad idea. This is smokier to me. (laughs) It is smokier, I agree. And actually, that's one of the ways that pepper is processed, particularly in areas that are humid. Um, (laughs) Traditionally, it's laid out to dry in the sun, but sometimes pepper houses uh, smoke it to dry it. So this actually might be a pepper that came from a pepper house that smoked their pepper, too. Yeah, it's definitely got got that extra flavor. Smoky note to it. It's also, even though I can't speak anymore... It's, mm-hmm. My it, eyes are watering. Yeah. <laughs> it's also like woodier than the other one. The other mm-hmm. one was more florally or 
fragrant, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So totally, even in just these two peppers that are both from India uh, and not that far away, we've got really different flavors in the two of them, too. Holy crap. I'm going to vote that we skip the third Indian Great. one. Yeah, I was no going to vote that, too. So let's do the, the Sarawak. The Sarawak and the Lampong are probably the ones um, that Americans were eating first when we were importing pepper. Probably the Sarawak, maybe the Lampong. It's really hard to know, but one or the other of these is what... Martha Washington would have been using. Uh-huh. Okay, so here goes the Sarawak. Channeling uh, Martha Washington. Hmm. That one had a really different texture for me, too. It was much lighter. And it's very sweet. Oh, yeah. And even though it does have that delayed burn, it's not like the telly cherry, which just... Yeah, the burn's not as hard. Right. This is much so, lighter. Practically refreshing compared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I quite agree with that, but um, okay. The uh, label says it's uh, ideal to use in a sweet custard or a fruit salad. So maybe Martha Washington was onto something using pepper in her cookies. At this point, my mouth was on fire. My brow was more than slightly warmed. I had taken off most of my clothes because I was sweating so much. Yes, this episode of Gastropod ended up with me half naked. Thank God we weren't recording this together. We tried a couple more Indian and Malaysian peppers. Then we tried one from Brazil, from the New World, so to speak, not from its original home. And that tasted bitter and disgusting. Sorry, Brazil. Sarah wanted us to taste a Talamanca pepper from Ecuador next. I honestly was ready to put an end to all this pepper tasting. And then Nikki had a brilliant idea. For a change. Can I um, propose an alteration in our trajectory? Because... The, I have the actual labels here, and the Talamanca, it says they're the highest in piperine, and I don't know if I can do <laughs> yes, it. I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> Let's I would it. like to try the Wynad, the Paris, Paramara Soiren Wynad ones, because well, it you says what. that these special and selected variety pepperberries are left on the vine until fully ripened to further develop and intensify the berry's inherent flavor. Interesting. So I feel like we should try them. Oh. Thoughts? I'm getting like really interesting notes. You were saying chocolate before, but I'm getting these kind of tangy, chocolatey, pineapple-y mm-hmm. flavors there. And do you notice how not spicy this is? Oh, I like that. Thank you, Nikki. That yeah. was a much better idea. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's delicious. Um, that's really yeah. good. I'm having another one. That's how crazy I am. <laughs> and it's because that, like I said earlier, the longer peppercorn ripens, its piperine content decreases. These have ripened, and so they have significantly less piperine than black pepper normally does. And it's a totally different flavor. Oh, it's great. I love it. Yeah, that's really nice. That's a much nicer one to end on. As you said, it was a terrible idea, but super fascinating. <laughs> but really so, fun anyway. <laughs> thank you. And, you know, listeners at home, go ahead, invite your friends, have your own black pepper tasting. Have some it's milk like, ready. I mean, but here's the flip side. We're, we're simultaneously miserable and happy. Like I suddenly have a big smile on my face. Because now my brain is reacting, and it's like, have some endorphins. It's going to be okay. Uh, and so here we are. I'm a little bit high, too. <laughs> well, that's a good go. note to leave it and, on. And, dude, I have, yeah. like, literally a thousand peppercorns in front of me, so I'm going to be high all week. Just put them in your pantry. They're whole peppercorns. They're going to last forever. forever. Put them in your pepper grinder. Create custom blends. Oh, my make God. Make some black pepper cookies. Make some steak au poivre and go crazy with it. I have a whole new respect for black pepper now, which is good because I also have a lifetime supply now. I'm kind of sad you didn't send me more of that final Indian one. It was delicious. Well, historically, we Brits have not been good at sharing black pepper. Sorry. 
But, you know, the stories of black pepper and sriracha... And And vanilla and curry powder. And all the other of Sarah's eight flavors. They all have fascinating backstories, but there's a larger point here. For Sarah, these flavors are American. But why? What makes these flavors American? Well, maybe there's two sides to that. And one is the practical approach. And the practical approach is we use a lot of these flavors. And in a lot of cases, we use more of the flavors I talk about in my book than any other country in the planet. For example, my second chapter, vanilla, America buys more than half of the vanilla that's available worldwide. But one flavor I often get a lot of pushback on is curry powder. And I think the one that I get the second most amount of pushback on is sriracha. How can you say that these two things are American? Sure, okay, I have black pepper in my kitchen. I use it every day. But like sriracha, that's not American. Curry powder, that's not American. But I think what this book is really pushing for is not just to define American cuisine by its flavors, but to propose a broader idea of who an American is. Because in terms of curry powder, we've been cooking curries in our kitchens in this country for over 200 years And we have immigrants from India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh coming to this country for over 100 years. Sriracha was created by a family of refugees who came here in 1980, started a business, followed the American dream, and the sauce is entirely made in Southern California and produced with ingredients from Southern California, made by a refugee family, a fourth-generation American farmer, These are the people that make up our country and make our country tick. So I think we have to stop thinking about America as being New England, white, because even those Puritans, those pilgrims that came over on that first boat, they were immigrants too. The face of the immigrant has changed. The place that they've come from has changed. But they are often the ones affecting the foods we eat. And it's time to stop saying that these people and these cultures are not a part of American culture. Because when you see foods and flavors happening that you don't see anywhere else in the world happening here, what can that be other than American? A huge thanks this episode to Sarah Lohman, historical gastronomist and author of Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine. Go buy it at your local bookstore. It's great fun. Thanks also to our awesome volunteer, Ari Lebowitz, for her help this episode. And we'll be back in two weeks with... That's right, seltzer. Till then. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You, dear listener, already know about the transformative power of food. You're probably thinking about food right now, aren't you? Look, we get it. Sometimes a craving is more than a craving. It's a calling that you have to indulge, even if it takes you thousands of miles to get there. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more.